0: Ezra. We're in a new book of the Bible. Let's turn there and find it in the Old Testament. It is in the Old Testament and it is a fascinating book that I thought was going to be a brief study looking at a historical moment in the life of Israel, but it has turned into so much more and it has great and deep connections with all of the Old Testament story, all of what our great big God was doing from Genesis To the end of the story in the Old Testament, this story is right at the ending point before the 400 years of silence and then the dawning of the birth of Jesus Christ, so it reaches back to everything that was building up to this pivot point in Israel's history, and it launches us forward into the New Testament church, and I'm hoping as Ezra has hit my heart in the 21st century as I live as a New Covenant Christian, that it will hit your heart as well. Let me read Ezra 1, one through four. In the first year of Cyrus, King of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus King of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also putting it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all of his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. It's an important text. This is a text that talks about how big God is, ruling and overruling, The rulers of the world, even this mega leader, Cyrus, who was king and, dare I say, lowercase, lord over the Persian Empire. All the way from India to Ethiopia, this was a powerful pagan ruler. But let me just tell you something. I'm going to talk about how powerful Cyrus is only to do one thing. I want to build up the fact that no matter how powerful somebody can become here in this world, God is the ruler and overruler of him. Even so much that he's going to use a pagan king to develop and expand his grand mission. God's will is always going to be done. It is. You know, sometimes it's hard for us to think this way as we're bombarded with sort of, A world that wins and loses. Win and lose theology is what we're always introduced to. And even at this time, this lovely time in the year where we celebrate the playoffs of the NFL. Now look, I know we lost some of you with that statement right there. Some of you have already had teams that have died and fallen by the wayside. Some of you could care less about football whatsoever. I respect that. But listen, here's the thing. We all understand winning and losing and the win and lose culture, right? The principle is clear that if you're on top and you're winning, you're part of the world's discussion. You're part of our society's discussion. When you lose, you kind of fade into the background, right? I know many of you who follow football, you'd be familiar with this guy, but nobody else is. A guy named Tim Tebow. Has anybody heard of him, right? We all have because they've been talking about him and he's uh, interesting story as a, a believer, someone who loves Christ, I believe, and has a good testimony. But it's interesting, as you follow him, he was winning, he kind of brought the Broncos back, and they made the playoffs barely, he lost three games leading up to the playoffs, and then beat the Pittsburgh Steelers, sorry to Al May for that, but anyway, beat the Pittsburgh Steelers, He's a great Steelers fan, anyway, but then, I came back from the event that we had at church last night and I Tebowed Tebow and I was looking to see how it fared and it didn't look good when I left and it looked kind of really bad when I got back. I think it was 45 to 10 and Tebow was on the losing side. So I just want you to observe with me how Tebow's name will kind of fade into the background as the playoffs march on and as you have a Super Bowl championship and victor. So, those will be the names and, you know, people that, and celebrities that people will be talking about now. You know, it's interesting, we kind of carry that sort of win-lose mindset into our own lives, don't we? we? You know, when we're on top, when we're achieving our goals, when we think we're doing well, when we're, we're getting it done in this life, you know, we're kind of money ahead and, and whatever and reaching out and things are happening and, you know, mile markers are being passed and we feel good, but... When things are going backwards, when goals aren't being met, when unforeseen circumstances hit and you start to feel the woe is me, you kind of are playing into that when I'm at the top or I'm at the bottom mentality. Let me just open up with this thought. God doesn't work that way. God doesn't work that way. And all of the sudden, God's kingdom is at work and moving ahead even when you feel like the lowest of the low, right? Right? God chooses his church, which he calls the not many mighty and not many noble, right? The fishermen that are sort of obscure in the background. The nation of Israel, as we're going to see in the book of Ezra, he chooses bodies of believers like these to manifest his rule and his glory. He takes the underdog, the people who are in in the background in obscurity to exalt himself. And in this story, in Ezra, you know the historical background, or you might not know, but that Judah, and specifically the city of Jerusalem, had been taken to a land called Babylonia, 500 miles away as the crow flies, but a great distance to Caravan, right? A long way away. They were put into exile under Babylon. The northern kingdom was under Assyrian captivity before that. And then you've got the new superpower under Emperor King Cyrus who's brought this new dominion of Persia. And those are the big dogs. Those are the new head knockers on the block. You have the kingdom of Persia. You had Babylon and you had the Assyrians. Nobody's thinking about Israel that's in the political backwater, right? Not true. There is someone who was thinking about Israel. And there is someone that thinks about you, and that is our God who reigns. Can I get an amen? Can I get a witness? God is in charge, and He is Lord over His people. And the same encouragement that Israel had to find out that God was Lord over their lives, even though they were in exile, they were displaced, They were out of their comfort zone. They were put into a different world system and world religion. And God was still on the throne, still in charge. And his plan was marching on and his truth was marching on. And they were going to be rescued back into their homeland. And guess what? The same promise is for his church. Jesus said to Peter, "I will build my church, Matthew 16, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and that same promise is for you as an individual member of the church, that he who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it till the day of the Lord Jesus Christ." Can I share a couple of things from Romans 8:28 and 29, to whom he foreknew? That person he predestined. That person he predestined, he justified. That person he justified, he sanctifies or grows. And then one day he will glorify that person. And I know from that verse that there are some terms like predestination that some of you don't appreciate. But you know what? When you stand back, don't you want a God that's that big after all? Don't you? When you look at your life, when you look at the the bumps and bruises of your own sin and your own life... I think it's important for us to say, I want a God that knew me before the foundation of the world, that's with me today in the present, and promises to bring me all the way to the finish line. Don't you want a God that's that big? We do. We do. And that's the God that we serve. A God that sort of blows our mind in how big he is. He's bigger than every president He's bigger than every world ruler. He's bigger than every circumstance. He's bigger than every world catastrophe, world war. He's bigger than every earthquake and hurricane and tsunami. He raises people up, he brings people down, and this is all part of his world-dominating purpose to build his church, to build his people for his glory. That's the God that Ezra introduces to us. That's the God that Israel needed to be encouraged to see once again. And this is your God that I want Ezra to be a window to show you how big he is once again in your life. He's that big. God cares about you. In Zechariah chapter 2 verse 8, God calls Israel the apple of his eye. And that's exactly what he is for you, God's rule. It's beyond our grasp, really, to comprehend, but you know what? This word is the revelation to give us an anchor or a foundation for us to stand and understand how big he is. We, we need a foundation from his word, and verse 1 gives us that foundation. I want you to notice, look at this. In the first year of, king of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. I want you just to let that, that phrase, the word of the Lord, by the mouth of Jeremiah, that that was going to be fulfilled. I want that to sink into your hearts this morning. Because no matter how much you think life is spinning out of control, no matter how much you feel like you're on that canoe, bouncing from boulder to boulder downstream with no paddle in your hand, guess what? The word of God is at work, and his promises that have been made are going to be kept and they're going to be fulfilled in your life. Praise the Lord. Amen. God's word is a rock. It's solid. These are black words frozen on a white page for a purpose, to keep us anchored as we sort of head down this path, watching God build his kingdom. And again, Israel, just to give you a a little review and a little outline, Israel's return from exile, it forced two issues to the surface in their lives. These are issues that surface in our lives. First of all, Israel was being called and commanded to leave exile, to be rescued, and it was sort of taking them out of their comfort zone. There was remaining sin in their lives where they, as you would read the book of Ezra, will find out that they had to struggle through pushing out of exile. And they had to come all the way back to God and had to come on mission. They're coming under three waves of return, King Zerubbabel, then you have Ezra, and then we're going to talk about Nehemiah, these leaders who said, look, go back to your homeland, go back to that that place that's been burned to the ground, that's now like a third world country. There's 100,000 of you up in captivity. We need you to go back home and reestablish base camp for my glory. And you need to come all the way in your heart. You don't need to just do it in external, you know, sort of motivation. You need to come all the way because you want God's glory to be on display again. So they are working through that. Come 500 miles back. It's like, look, It's not a straight shot 500 miles. It's like Anchorage to Homer, right? It's like, you know, caravanning all the way back. It's not an easy journey. But secondly, and this morning we're going to look at this point. This book exalts God's overruling power. Verse 1 is talking about what theologians, theologians will call God's transcendence. Guess what? God is bigger than time, bigger than circumstances, and bigger than all rulers. And our first point is this, under that. God's word, it drives the past. It drives the past, or it drives history. That's what God's word does. God's word is going to be done. Look at verse 1. It's the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. It's 539 B.C. and this king has come on the scene and sort of taken over the known world. He's overthrown Babylon. He's overthrown Nebuchadnezzar and other kings. The Lord has stirred his heart, not only as we're going to see to make this proclamation, but God had stirred his heart historically for him to move his kingdom all the way from India that Persian area to expand across Mesopotamia and connect with Ethiopia or Cush. Esther 1.1 says the kingdom of Persia was from India to Cush or India to Ethiopia. That's a wide swath of the world. All the way up to modern Turkey. This was the new head knocker of the world. And that was all part of God's plan. Prophecies were fulfilled and they were predicting that this man, watch this, by the name Cyrus would do this. A century and a half before Isaiah was on the scene down in Judah, the southern kingdom, and he prophesied that by name that a man would come up and do this and that this man would be used to rebuild a temple that had not yet been destroyed. Just think about this. Isaiah 41.2. Very specific prophecy. 150 years before, Isaiah says, Who stirred up, God stirred up one from the east, talking about from this Persian area, whom victory meets at every step. Later on in the verse, he tramples kings underfoot. Isaiah 44, 28 says, Cyrus, name specific, he is my shepherd. In other words, God's saying, this is my pagan pawn that I'm using to to advance my purposes. He shall fulfill all my purpose. He's talking about the temple. She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Isaiah 45:1. Thus says the Lord, to his anointed Cyrus, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. He's going to loose the belts of kings. This is just like um, how God used Nebuchadnezzar as well. I'm going to try to ask and answer the question, why does God use pagans like this? But he specifically, in Jeremiah 25, 9, there was a prediction that Nebuchadnezzar was the servant of God. Well, God drives the past. God's word drives the past. In other words, when Jeremiah prophesied that 70 years would pass and that the people of Israel would be released... God's will was going to be done. No doubt. No doubt. Just like in our um, reading of scripture, what's the next event that's going to happen? Think about it. In redemptive history, what's the next most important event? Revelation 22. John says what? Even so, come Lord Jesus. God's word is driving history. And guess what? The most important next event event in God's calendar is Jesus's return. That's it. There's a lot of things that, that consume us in terms of the future, you know, goals that we want to achieve, things we want to see in our lifetime, things we want our kids to do, seeing our grandkids. But, you know, when God suddenly cuts your life short, God's greater kingdom goals are the ones that matter most, Right? People's eternal destinies. Where are you with Christ? And when is He going to return and rescue me and bring me to His temple, the new heavens and the new earth? Revelation twenty one, twenty two. That's what matters. And the next event in the calendar of God's program in Ezra was the rebuilding of His temple down in that city of Zion. And Jeremiah. He was on the scene down there already at that time of Ezra. And he's predicting that this is going to happen at the close of 70 years. And it is on the scene to happen. In fact, if we were looking at the story of Daniel, Daniel was part of that royal family that was first captured in the southern kingdom in Jerusalem and taken up under Nebuchadnezzar up to Babylon. And so he begins as this young leader there. In the captivity. And then in Daniel chapter 9, and we're not going to look there now, but he actually finds Jeremiah's letters and unrolls the scroll and finds the prediction. And the predictions of Jeremiah are very specific. Jeremiah 25, 12. And then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon. Jeremiah twenty-nine ten. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed. I'm just bringing that out to say, look, God's word is specific. It's on time, and it's, it's driving history. It's driving what happens to us. Do you feel that when you think about those who are, are running in the Republican race for that seat, you know, to be our representative if you're a Republican? Or do you think about that in terms of our Democratic president that is in office right now? Do you think that, you know, God is running history? He, he knew who was going to be the president, who was going to be the governor, who was going to be the mayor. He knows all these things. He knew who you were going to marry. Who knew what kids you were going to have. His word and his program is all involved in that. Do you see God's word in that way? You should. Because otherwise, you don't have an anchor in your life. That's what the psalmist meant when he says God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. He meant that you have a lantern in front of you that guides you in every step That you take. And even though the word of God doesn't necessarily tell you exactly what to do. Like look, it doesn't tell you what kind of toothpaste to buy, right? (laughs) It doesn't tell you, you know, what to fix for dinner or not. It doesn't tell you specifically what job to take. But it is the wisdom of God's word that enlightens our eyes to see a greater program that he is involved in. That helps inform the decisions we make. God's word informs our priorities what we give to, where we serve, the relationships that we develop, who we will witness to, who we will, will flee from and put distance between ourselves from, right? Relationships that could hurt us, relationships that could drag us away. God's word informs us regarding addictions. It informs us in terms of, you know, everything about us. It informs our joy, it it informs what we should get excited about and what we should run from. God's Word needs to be intricately woven into the thinking and decisions of our lives because God's Word is the only thing that we know that's a guarantee in this life. It's the only objectivity we really have. It's a lot of things that we think we can predict and that we think we can hang on as a safety line in our world, but really God's Word is our baseline it's our foundation it's his word and look at this uh, the the phrase in verse one really is a great definition of the inspiration of scripture the word of the lord by the mouth of jeremiah that it might be fulfilled what is what is who wrote this book What, what is he saying the word of the lord well it's god's word But it's coming through a prophet and it's going to be fulfilled. That's the definition of inspired scripture. 2 Timothy 3.15, it says all of God's word is inspired or literally God breathed. God breathed. That's a very important concept. It's the idea that all of the authors of all of the books of the Bible were put in a position where through their personalities, the Holy Spirit was breathing words that were going to be written down to guide our lives no matter who they were writing to or what the circumstances were or what the genre of scripture they were writing in, whether poetry or whether history or prophecy or gospel narrative or epistles or letters in the New Testament or apocalyptic literature and revelation, no matter how they were writing, God's Holy Spirit was behind the scenes, involved in the mind of the author and pouring his word through that personality And we have those words captured for us for all time to help us through. Amen? Aren't you glad for the inspiration of Scripture? We should be because we have a book that we can go to that trumps all other books. This is the the inspired Word of God for our lives. We don't just read it for discipline. We don't just read it, you know, as a holy book for moral application. This is our love letter and lifeline to know God and let His will drive us day after day to make decisions in life. It's the word of God. Second Peter 1.21, same thing. Authors were moved by the Holy Spirit as they wrote the word of God. Well, all right. So God's word, it drives history. It was, it was driving Cyrus coming on the scene as this leader that God was going to use. And then God's word drives the present. What do I mean by that? God's word is involved not only in the past and and predictions that will be fulfilled, but God's word was presently involved, and it was presently involved in this sense. God the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. In other words, for God's word and prophecies of Jeremiah to be fulfilled, God had to enter into the life of Cyrus. Isn't that kind of weird? Think about it. He's a pagan king. He's, as we're going to find out, really an anti-God pagan king that's involved with the worship of Marduk, who's sort of the, in the you know, pantheon of Babylonian gods. He's, he's paying homage to Marduk, the ruler of Babylonia. He's sort of bought into that religion. And God's involved in stirring the heart of this ruler. What's up with that? ever think, how could God... Sort of touch that kind of spirit. Isn't you know, he causes believers to be born again. He stirs our hearts to come alive and relate to him. But the Bible says that he also intimately works through pagans. Now in verse five, we're going to see the same word. He stirs the believers to get on mission and, and get out of Babylon, Persia, but He's also stirring the heart of this pagan. Literally, he roused this, the spirit, he roused the spirit of Cyrus. Proverbs 21.1, this is what it says about God's involvement in kings, kings in general. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Why does God do this? Why does God, let me just answer the question. I sort of, sort of, sowed the seed last week. Why does God decide to work through a pagan? I think for simply this reason, to show that it's God who's at work and not the pagan. You get somebody who's anti-God and God's will is overruling that, how much more powerful is that? Why prop a man up to be a world leader at that level? I mean... I hope I've made a little bit of the case that Cyrus was a big dog in the world. He was, he was really a guy who was a mover and shaker. He sends a decree and he's putting the world on its head, right? Well, why does God let somebody rise to power at that level? So that God can override that for the sake of little tiny Israel, little obscure Israel. Guess what? God's real program is through those people, not Cyrus. That's what he's doing. That's what we're all about here. We're little Anchorage Grace that's, you know, kind of right here in this area. What are we all about compared to what's going on in the state or our country? Well, guess what? We're a big deal in God's eyes. And that's not to prop us up. That's just because God's program for his glory is a big deal. And he decided to love us and include us in that process. It's exciting to give towards mission, to be a part of mission, to to be promoting what God has guaranteed. He's stirring world leaders to prop up his mission. So why do we pray for world leaders? Why do we pray for our president? You know, if we have the wrong mindset, win and lose mindset, you know, well, I didn't win, you know, or... You know, he, he didn't turn out to be the person that I wanted to be president or the economy's down. You know, if we think that way, you're not really thinking, man, I, I want to really pray for that guy. Or you think, man, you know, I don't know if he's a believer or not, so I don't know if I want to pray for him. You can't think that way. you got to think God's mission is at work through leaders. And he establishes leaders so that we will pray for, him, pray for them and see what God's will is. First Timothy 2, 2 says it this way. We're to pray for them. For kings and all who are in high positions, watch this, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life. Can the pagan bring peace in your life through his authority? Absolutely, as we pray for that. Yes, that's because God works in spite of the ideologies and the, the goals of leaders and his will is penetrating and working through that. Think about what was called the Pox Romana. You know, back in the early days of the early church, the peace of Rome. Well, that peace of Rome came so that the gospel could spread to the nations. And we, we're experiencing that same kind of peace right now. I don't know how long it'll last, but we need to enjoy the religious freedom that we have, even though it's coming through this sort of spirit of tolerance and what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. We need to take advantage of it and go, well, that's great. That's the spirit that you're working under, but we believe that Jesus is the only way. Can I get an amen on that? And so we need to take advantage of that and mobilize missionaries and support them. Mobilize our mission here and support this to promote the gospel during our peace of America time. You know, in the U.S., you had the founding fathers, right? You had some believers that sort of wrote up our Constitution and and we sort of celebrate them but we also celebrate the unbelievers right the people who were influenced by god's word but were deists like benjamin franklin you know he was good buddies with george whitfield and i did a study on george whitfield and he really respected george whitfield and was was influenced by whitfield's public open-air preaching that he was doing up and down our countryside before the American Revolution. And, and Benjamin Franklin was intrigued by this man. He said, look, I don't believe what Whitfield says, but he believes it, and that kind of conviction is powerful. Well, Benjamin Franklin, as far as we know, was an unbeliever and a deist. He believed that God was sort of outside of time. He wound up, you know, the world's creation and what's going on, like a big clock, and then spun it out into... Into go mode, but didn't really understand the gospel per se. Thomas Jefferson, same thing. He sort of rewrote a a version of the Bible, taking the miracles out of it. But at the same time, these men were influenced by God directly, and we are experiencing the benefit of their brilliance and leadership in history. And we need to understand these things. God is overruling. That's you know, this kind of idea is perhaps why we can at some level, vote for a person who's not a believer. There might be a candidate that comes up that we say, I I don't believe exactly the way that person believes, but, you know, it's my best choice, and I'm trusting that God will stir the spirit and the heart of a king in spite of himself, in spite of his ideologies or errant thinking. That's how we get out of the win-lose mentality and we're trusting that the kingdom of God is being advanced. That's how we get excited about church. That's where we go. That's why we gather together around the truth to understand that we're, we're not part of the win-lose mentality in the world. We are winning because Christ's plan, God's plan was for Christ to die before the foundation of the world. That was in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. And then Christ did die in present day history, right? Genesis 3.15, it said that the Son of God would come and crush the serpent's head. And in fact, Jesus did. And you know what that does? That secures our future that God is the victor of all things. God's not in heaven struggling with whether or not we're going to win. He's not in some cosmic prize fight with the devil hoping that as the champion, he he will raise his arm in victory one day. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities, but that's part of God's plan for our lives, part of something he's allowed as he allows Satan to have this sort of reign of sin and terror to challenge the church. I mean, we don't understand why God does all of those things, but you know what? You dare not doubt the fact that God is bigger than all of that. And he's the winner. He is the ultimate champion. He's not playing chess with Satan hoping that he wins. God's not surprised by anything. His will is set in the past, is active in the present, and secure for the future. This is our God. And I'll tell you what, it can be terrifying to think of God that way. Because we know when the wheels fall off of our lives, we go, man, God, if you knew the past and you're involved in the present, and you got my future, what's going on? But you know what? At that point, it's where God has us right where He wants us, where we're going, Lord, I just trust You. You are in charge. You are that big that I don't have to understand how it all fits together. But You are in control. Cyrus, he, at this point, back to verse 1, he was godlike. He was godlike but that was so that God could display his rule. Let me show you where this is really poignant in the scripture. John chapter 19, you might turn there, verses 10 and 11. You have Jesus, who's on trial, going to the cross at this point in history. John chapter 19, and he's talking to Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate is sort of feeling his seat of power in this moment because he's hearing Jesus Christ who's on trial. He's hearing the claims that Christ has propped himself up as God and deserves death and Jesus is on death row and he's going to execution. And then you've got Pontius Pilate who sort of says, Jesus, do you know who you're talking to? I mean, this is what Pontius Pilate does. Do you know who you're talking to? Watch what he says. He says so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? So Pilate's feeling pretty large and in charge at this point, right? What does Jesus say? Jesus has the right mentality, obviously. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. You know what Jesus says? He says, listen, let me just reframe this for you. I'm here because I'm fulfilling God's will. You think that you have the power to release me? You wouldn't even be in office if my Heavenly Father had not put you there. And so you think you're responsible for the outcome of what's happening, but really... These people who have put me on trial, they are more culpable. They're more responsible for what's happening in terms of morality. But God is overruling all of the events in history. Pilate wasn't in charge. Jesus knew God was in charge of his life. So, again, why did God use a pagan king? I just want to answer this question. Kind of beating it to death. Well, the Puritan Thomas Watson put it this way. God can make a straight stroke with a crooked stick. That's why we pray. That's why we pray for people that we don't necessarily agree with. That's why you have hope in your life. No matter what your circumstances are, guess what? God is overruling what you think is best for your life. He's working things out. He's working everything together for the good, Romans eight twenty eight. He's completing the plan that He's promised and started in your life. He's taking you 2 Corinthians 3:16 from one stage of glory to the next. He's bringing you ever closer to what 1 Corinthians 13 says. We see in part, we see kind of in in kind of we see God's glory in part, you know, through the word, through like our sin, and it's like looking into kind of an obscure glass or obscure mirror, but one day we'll see Christ face to face. You know, he he called us He justified us. He sanctified us. He's going to bring us to glory. All of that is part of his overruling plan. And he displays this by using a pagan. I don't really have time. I'm going to take a little time. Look at Daniel real quickly. Daniel chapter 4. I just want to show you, I mean, how, how boldly... A pagan can speak when they're under the power of God. Remember Nebuchadnezzar in, in this, he precedes Cyrus as the Babylonian ruler, the one that Cyrus would have overthrown. This is King Nebuchadnezzar, and he in verse 28 is talking about how propped up he is. Verse 30 says, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And God says, no, no, guess what? You're reduced to an animal for seven seasons. We're going to grow hair out your back, your fingernails are going to get really long, and you're going to eat grass. That's what's going on, really. And so Nebuchadnezzar superficially repents, but look how boldly he gives sort of praise and glory to God. Verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Look how bold these words are. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He gave a similar word after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They'd been thrown into the fiery furnace and they were delivered out of that. He saw the fourth person in the furnace, which I believe was a Christophany, a picture of Christ in the furnace with him. And he sort of, his mind was blown and he was responding to what had happened. And he says, listen, anybody that goes against your God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God, let them be torn limb from limb. Check it out in Daniel 3 sometime. Pretty bold statements. But I bring this up just to say this. You can say a lot of bold things for God and still not have your heart changed. Cyrus's spirit was stirred for God's purposes to be done, but I don't believe Cyrus was a believer, and I don't believe Nebuchadnezzar was a believer. Some people debate that, but I'm trying to make the point that Our country, our society, and our world can speak very boldly on behalf of God and not have clue one about who they're really talking about to be very careful. There is a smoke screen that people live behind in postmodernism, where they say, look, what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. And so, yeah, I'll believe in God in general and talk about God in general. But, you know, in terms of Jesus being the only way or the word of God being inspired or Jesus being born of a virgin and Jesus being fully God and fully man to the exclusion of what other people think about their God, I'm not going to go there. So you go there. That's good for you at Anchorage Grace. But don't mess with me, and it's all a smokescreen. And it can sound so charitable and so loving too. Like I, I really, you know, Jesus is good for you. You know, I really have compassion for you in that. And it can sound so good, but it, really, what it is, it's people ducking behind their smokescreen because they don't want to contend with a God who's this big. That's why having a high view of God is so important, because the Bible describes God in this way, and you either know this God or you don't. He's that big. And Jesus is the only way. And guess what? And I don't mean this in a prideful way, but our world is confused about God. And for some reason, people like us who live in obscurity have the answer to life here on earth and for all of eternity for people. That's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians that we in these sort of earthen vessels Behold the glory of God. We, we, we house the gospel. We have the key to life for, for ourselves and for people, for other people. We understand God's most important program of what he's doing and what event is coming next with his return. And we understand how to guide people. And we should understand how to guide people to Jesus Christ. And it's whether or not we will get on mission like the children of Israel, were being called to be on mission back in Ezra. Well, turn back there once again. God's word drove, it drives the past, it drives history, it drives the present, and God's word drives the future. God's word drives the future. Now I'm going to look at the immediate future, and then to wrap up, I want us to look at the not-too-distant future. The immediate future is simply this. He stirred the spirit of Cyrus, verse 1, so that a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing. That's sort of the immediate future plan as it's playing out. First of all, Cyrus was stirred and he was able to shake the world with the message. And the message was simply that God's house was going to be rebuilt down in Jerusalem. And this is priority number one in terms of the priority list of a mega leader. We're looking to Jerusalem being rebuilt. And that's, what, that's what matters most. Cyrus might, might not even known, have known why it was this big of a priority, but God was doing it through him. So he sent spokespersons town criers people who would be introduced by massive trumpets that were blowing and people would say listen you need to understand this is what's happening this is the message of verses 2 through 4 which is actually repeat from second chronicles I think Ezra was the chronicler of 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And if you look left in your Bible, it's the exact same decree. It was a very important decree that was written, it was posted, and it was spoken throughout the whole world. Spoken to two kinds of people. People who were immediately on board as Israelites going home and sojourners who were kind of catching on to see if they wanted to be part of of God's mission this was an extreme and an expansive venture literally it's he caused a voice to go forth now that's the immediate future but let me show you the not too distant future with a phrase at the end of verse one very important it was put in writing now again I've talked about how his you know, put in writing and posted around the world. But guess what? If you read the book of Ezra, that little phrase is a very strong allusion to something that's going to happen and be important in the story. And that's simply this, that once the decree was written, it was archived or filed in Babylon, in the archives of Babylon. And that's important simply because of this. And I'll just tell you the story really quickly. You have the first wave of exiles returning home under the prince Zerubbabel and Zerubbabel is all on mission and he's saying let's build the temple back to the place where it had been burned down by the Babylonians right in the exact same spot where Solomon had built the temple in our third world country effort we're gonna go for it here we're pooling resources and getting it done. And, and then there are enemies, as you would read in Ezra 4 and 5, who are, who are stymieing the mission. They're, they're breeding discouragement. They're writing letters to rulers like Artaxerxes and getting the process stopped. And it actually stops for 20-some years. Very discouraging time. And then God, as we talked about last time, he sends his preachers, Haggai and Zechariah, Ezra chapter 5. They say, look, obey God rather than man. You need to keep going here and, and start the building process again. But then in the providence of God, you have a king, Darius, who is prompted, I think, in the Lord's plan to go and search for the decree that was originally written by Cyrus. Verse 17, it talks about how It was, we're going to search in the royal archives of Babylon and then chapter 6, verse 1, he makes a decree to find the decree of Cyrus. Now, do you think all of that happened by mistake? Do you think that sort of, happened and was happening and it was taking god by surprise like you really didn't know the future and and wow you know oh wait there's a document there in babylon so we need to recover that and get get the temple built and 20 years were lost you think that was what was going on no not at all God's word controls the past, controls the present, and Jeremiah's prophecy was going to be fulfilled and the temple was going to be rebuilt, Isaiah's prophecy as well, because God had planned even the detail of the decree being written and archived and found as part of his will. Is God involved in the details of your life? You know, every week of my life, when life gets hard or difficult, or the power goes out in the church, or, you know, this happens or that, or, you know, sickness hits the family, or your life gets on its head, isn't it important to recognize that God's will is being done and it's perfect and God's involved in all the details? He is. He's controlling the past, the present, and the future. He's controlling even a pagan like Cyrus. We know Cyrus was a pagan. Um, not only because of how he describes things in verses two through four, but also because of history. I actually did a little research on um, an artifact that was found called the Cylinder of Cyrus, and it was found in the eighteen hundreds, eighteen seventy nine, and it's it's archived in the British Museum. There's a piece, a fragment of it, in a Yale Museum. But this is a twenty three centimeter long cylinder that is in the Alcadian language of the day in Mesopotamia and it's, it's Cyrus and his testimony about what was going on and what he was up to and I just want to bring out the fact that Cyrus he paid strong allegiance to Marduk who was the chief god in the Babylonian pantheon he prayed to Bel and Nebo I don't really know who they are but he was praying for them for success to take over Babylon in the first place and he attributes success to Marduk, he said, I entered Babylon without fighting. I uh, you know, I had us delivered to me. In other words, this certain king was killed. That's a kind way to put it. I, I was able to kill that king. And then it talks about how tolerant Cyrus was to the religious scene of the day. He says, I return the images of the gods to the sacred centers. Those are that's the religious temple worship. Um, where? So that's the temple furniture. I, I delivered that back to them beyond the great river, which is Tigris, so that they could dwell in their eternal abodes, so that they could go back to their dwellings. So why do I bring this up? I just bring this up again to say, look, Cyrus wasn't anything special. God was using a pagan who was majorly tolerant for his will to be done. Strong, pos- strong profession for God but it was disingenuous. Look at the text. I just want to bring out two through four really quickly to show you where Cyrus sort of steps out of the camp of being a believer. It says Cyrus, king of Persia. Now he he says, the Lord, the God of heaven, which is he speaks of God as Yahweh there, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. He says, whoever is among you of all his people, May his God be with him. I take this as very postmodern language. May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. Watch this phrase. Who is the God who is in Jerusalem. So I've got my God here and, and you've got your God there and we're all good. And guess what? Probably Cyrus was going to leverage Judah and Jerusalem in the future as a political jumping point to take more of Egypt over, right? I mean, he's just a politician. Nothing wrong with being political. Sorry about that. But he's just a politician, and he is a person who's leveraging his political power in a tolerant way to get his will done. He says, your God's good for you, and my God is good for me. People just, they, they play games with that. But as God's will is working through this pagan leader, God is moving the people out to do his mission. I want to point that out. There were two kinds of people who were moving on. Look at verse four. It says, let each survivor, that's each person who's a believer, who's part of the, the remnant of Israel in whatever place he sojourns, Wherever you are, if you're on mission or or if you're kind of this hippie Christian, you know, that's that's just kind of you know in and out of whether you're not whether you're connected to God's mission or not, you're this kind of hippie believer. Whether or not you're connected or not, I want you to get on mission and you're sojourning, but but you're going to be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings. You know what he's saying here? He's saying God's decree through Cyrus is saying that people around the Israelites are going to fund this process. They're going to they're find themselves, you have Cyrus who's stirred to make this happen, but they're going to find themselves under command of Cyrus, and they're going to find themselves giving to a mission that they don't really care anything about. Like, wow, there's, there's momentum that's generating here for God's mission for obscure Israel that nobody knows about, and they're going to be giving to this. They're going to give their their ox, they're going to give their donkeys, they're going to provide food, they're going to provide money, they're going to provide what's called free will offerings, they're going to volunteer service, they're going to volunteer money to help this mission happen. That's so often how God's work and will works, you know? It's like, why are there churches all over the place? Why, Why has this happened? Why have people volunteered for the gospel mission? It's because God's doing it. And oftentimes even secular organizations and societies will give to it and support it. And God's will is working and it doesn't always make sense why God's will is being done. It's the same thing with the exodus under Pharaoh. God commanded through Pharaoh that people would give to the Israelites leaving Pharaoh's command. It's the same thing now leaving Cyrus's command. People were giving to that and being on board with that. You know, you heard the announcement about our renewal project. I thought that was really well done. And, you know, you might go, man, it doesn't all the way make sense for me to to be a part of this. But you might find yourself really prompted by the Holy Spirit to be part of something like this because God might want it done. And I don't know what the future is or exactly how he wants his will to work out with this. But God's mission is moving on and he rules and overrules through his people and even through pagans. Have you ever heard of a scenario, it's just something that's kind of wild. you ever heard of a scenario where someone got saved hearing the gospel through an unbeliever? And that person gets saved and they march on for Christ and then this other person's falling off the wagon. I think that happened to me. I don't know where my Sunday school teacher is today that really was preaching the gospel to me. And I was swept into the kingdom and then he was just kind of gone. And it also happens when you're witnessing to somebody that seems receptive and they're listening. But then they ultimately reject. But then their friends who are listening on or connected to that conversation, they are one to Christ. You don't always understand how the Lord is working. But he was working through his people and even through pagans to support this mission. Let's apply this. I just want to anchor this in three ways. We're not called to live in a win or lose mindset. We're called to bow in the knee before a God that's bigger than we can really grasp. Where, you know, a God who's a dictator can be terrifying unless you understand him in terms of grace, right? We didn't earn his rule in our lives. We don't have to earn favor with this God who owns the past, present, and future. We just have to come under his rule by grace. He touched our hearts. He transformed us. He saved us by his grace alone and rules our past, present, and future. He cleansed our past. Past, he cleanses our present, and he will cleanse your future. Let me just put it this way. Just like the decree of Cyrus that was found again that continued God's mission on, do you believe that God has, in a decree, written your name in the Lamb's book of life. Do you believe that? Our names are written in God's book of life. Jesus, he he comforted his disciples that way. Luke 10, he says, don't rejoice in the mission you're on, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And because we know our names are written in heaven, we can serve a God who is that big, controls the past according to his word. He controls the present and he's in control of the future. And by the gospel and by his grace, we are involved in that. And we have hope. Israel needed hope as they were coming out of exile. I hope that you've been encouraged by the hope of the gospel that God is in control of your life and in control of your mission. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time in your word.